Part 3, Section 3 of the Autobiography of Cockney Tom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Thomas Coos. The Autobiography of Cockney Tom by Thomas Bassard. Part 3, Section 3. Now, amongst my acquaintances at this time was one Tom Doyle, a corporal in the detective department of police. He called on me one morning and said, How are you, old fellow? Quite well, said I. Have you heard of the numerous robberies that have been committed lately, Tom? Said he. I saw a letter in the newspaper, said I, complaining of the police and making out that they could not be over smart or they would long since have discovered the thief. But don't you suspect any one? Well, said he, as you are a sworn constable, I'll tell you in confidence that I suspect that fellow that tried to drown you and your wife. So keep your eyes open, and if you hear anything, let me know at once. A family in North Adelaide of the name of Fitzpatrick has had their house robbed while they were at church. The thieves took Mrs. Fitzgerald's dresses, the child's clothes, and a musical box that was on the table. Now, as you are fond of music, should such a thing as thing be brought here for sale, make some inquiries about it and let me know the result. I kept a good lookout, and it so happened that I was destined to be the means of bringing the thief to justice. One of my friends kept a watchmaker shop in Rundle Street, and I cautioned him that if any person called to sell it musical box, or to have one repaired, to take down the particulars. Well, I shall have enough to do, said he, for every day I have repairs to make of that kind. I, however, kept calling on my friend every day, as we were very great chums, and sang together at the cathedral, and other places not worth mentioning. And on one of these occasions, my friend said, Do you remember speaking to me about a musical box? I do, said I. What about it? Nothing particular, said he. Only a woman came in today with one to have a new frame made for it. The instrument is good, but there are one or two teeth broken. I never had a job like it before. What is the name of the person that brought it? Asked I. He looked in the book and read as follows. Mrs. Baldiston, Grenfell Street, Adelaide. Goodbye, said I. I will see you this evening. And the first thing I did was to see my friend, Tom Doyle, whom I soon found. My boy, I've got a scent, and believe I can put you to the man who stole the musical box. And with that, I told him all I knew, and when mentioned the name, Doyle was ready to jump out of his shoes. That's the man at the government house, said he, and we will soon have him. The first thing to be done is to see Mr. Pfeindler, the watchmaker, and then to call on Mr. Fitzpatrick and arrange with him to meet us at Befandler's to swear to the box. If he can do so, I'll get out warrant to arrest my man and search his house. We met at the appointed time at Befandler's, set the musical box going, and before it had finished the second tune, Mrs. Fitzpatrick exclaimed, That is my box, and I will swear to it in any court of justice. Sign this paper then, said Doyle, and I will see you tomorrow morning. Doyle immediately took out a warrant and sent a policeman to Balliston's house. He then walked down to Government House to inquire, when who should answer the door but Balliston himself in full livery. "'I want you,' said the detective. "'Want me? What for?' asked the indignant valet. "'Here is my authority,' said the detective, showing his warrant. "'If you will be good enough to wait till I change my clothes,' said the valet, "'I will go with you.' I won't be long. The detective was taken off guard by this little stratagem, for this prisoner quickly made tracks for the back door, bolted down the garden, jumped the wall, and made straight for his house. 
As soon as the detective discovered the trick, and fearing the escape of his man, he also proceeded to Balderston's house in Grenfell Street to catch him there. As soon as he found the detective was at his heels, he made his escape at the back door, mounted the fence, got into Rundle Street, and crossed North Terrace, followed by a crowd of men and boys who had heard the cry of stop thief from the detective who was not far behind him in the chase. As they neared the Botony Gardens, they lost sight of Baldiston for a short time, but a boy, having given information that he had seen a man get over the railing into the stable-yards of Sir Henry Ayers, the detective, and the mob that had gathered, besieged the yard and stable. Doyle got into the hayloft, turned over the hay, and found the wretched man rolled like a dog. The detective pulled him out, ornamented him, with the bracelets, and took him first to his own house, where he took Mrs. Baldiston also in charge, and marched both of them off to the station. He had also taken the precaution to leave a policeman in charge of the house, where the thief had an immense lot of stolen property stowed away. The next day they had their hearing, and the wife was discharged. But Baldiston was committed and afterwards tried at the Supreme Court, and was sentenced to seven penal servitude. I never appeared as a witness against him, for although he had robbed and mistreated me and my wife sorely, yet I bore no malice towards the poor fellow, but left him to his fate. Neither were the prince or his excellency the governor called at the trial. This evil-disposed man had robbed so many people that at least a hundred charges could have been laid against him, and there was a perfectly dray load of stolen property taken to the police station to be claimed by the owners. Whilst in prison, his conduct at first was fearful. He even attempted to cut his own throat, but after a time finding it was no good to be stubborn, he got to be as quiet as a lamb and became very pious. He even preached to the prisoners on Sundays when he could get a chance, and wrote a long letter making a full confession of what he had done and left undone. Amongst the latter was a design to blow up the city baths. He stated in his letter that he intended getting on to the roofs of the baths and dropping down the chimneys sundry bags of gunpowder, so that when the strings got burnt, the bags of powder would fall, and a general blow-up of the whole place would have been the happy result. The Reverend Wilton Hack, a good man and a minister of the gospel, used to visit the prison. The gentleman took a liking to the prisoner, and is said to have converted him, and after a time baptized him in the presence of all the prisoners. He was relieved from hard labor, and appointed attendant in the sick ward. His general behavior was so good that at the end of four years he was released. Mr. Hack helped to set him up in business in North Adelaide as a greengrocer. His wife rejoined him, and all seemed to go well for some time. He held prayer meetings and occasionally preached on Sundays, sometimes at one place and sometimes at another. But his wickedness could not have been thoroughly eradicated, and an evil fate seemed to have cast its shadow over his life. Truly the way of transgressors is hard. His wife left him, and he mixed himself up with some old chums from the stockade. At this time a cart and horse were missing, and somehow or other he was summoned as a witness in the case, and when asked his name, he said it was Edward Turner, but the judge remembered him as the notorious Baldiston who had robbed the prince. The indefatigable detective, Thomas Doyle, was prompted to the rank of sergeant, with a reward of twenty pounds for the zealous performance of his duty to his queen and country in the celebrated Baldiston case. About this time the governor, Sir James Ferguson, was taking a course of Turkish baths, and used to attend him professionally, and instruct him in the art of natation, 
and the governor, in appreciation of my services, employed me to teach his children, Master Charles and two Mrs. Ferguson's. I had some scruples at that time with regard to teaching ladies to swim, but these were soon got over by Sir James pointing out that it was nothing but false modesty, and one that ought to be abolished, and further, that in his travels round the world he had observed in every place he had visited, where bathing was practiced, that the males and females bathed together in costume, and concluded his remarks with the well-known quotation, evil be to him that evil thinks. I then undertook the task, and commenced my labors the next morning at six a.m. The young ladies were very anxious to learn, and soon became good swimmers. Master Charles was not quite so quick as his sisters, but in time he also became a first-class swimmer. His Excellency was so delighted when he came to the baths to witness their performances in the water that he complimented me and sent me a very handsome present in the shape of a beautiful breastpin, ornamented with a miniature painting on ivory of Lahore, Gale Palace, India. It is mounted in gold and bears the following inscription, presented to T.B. by His Excellency Sir James Ferguson, Bart, Adelaide, 1870, and was accompanied with the following written testimonial. Government House, 3rd December, 1872. Mr. T.B., I am much obliged to you for the care you have taken of my children and for your excellent instruction to them in the art of swimming, which I am sure will be of lasting service to them. Signed, James Ferguson. It was, indeed, destined to be of very great service to them, for in the month of April of the following year, whilst Master Charles was bathing in the sea at Rogue, he swam out too far his strength, but his sisters swam out to his assistance, and saved his life. See Adelaide Express, 3rd May, 1872. Sometimes after the above event, I was appointed swimming master to the government model schools, and ever since that date of my diploma, 24th March, 1874, I have enjoyed the distinguished title of professor. From this time, my business increased considerably. My swimming matches, which I had established in 1864, became very successful, and many thousands of good swimmers have been the result, and many lives have been saved in consequence. Two of my daughters I brought out as swimming mistresses, and they have taught a great number of young ladies swimming accomplishments. About the end of the year, 1877, business was very bad, and my health also began to fail, and my medical attendant, Dr. Way, advised me to abstain from drink and take a change in the country, for the reader must know the truth, viz. that I had given way to excessive drinking, and I think now that it was hardly to be wondered at. Concerning the temptations I had been exposed to as landlord of three public houses in Adelaide, namely the Prince Alfred, the Earl of Zetland, and the Theatre Royal Hotel. In these places I saw dissipation enough to make men shudder at the thought of a drunkard's life. The effect on me was the growing habit of taking nobblers with everybody who asked me, which habit became so confirmed that I felt as though I could not live without it. But happily for me, I have since found out that was entirely a mistaken notion. My good wife at this time was becoming too ill to work, so I thought it was my duty to let her rest. I therefore took a house and made over the business to my son Philip and retired, believing it would be as good for myself as for my wife. Everything being arranged, we left the baths, I still retaining the lease and the rights thereunder. Shortly after this, my wife's illness became serious 
and she gradually got worse, and three months afterwards departed this life in hope of a better beyond. I am glad to be able to say, and those who knew her will endorse the statement, that there was no reason to fear as to her future, for she died trusting wholly in our Lord, her Saviour. I was then left with ten children out of fourteen, but fortunately most of them were grown-up men and women. It was a great blow to me to lose my partner in life after being married to her thirty-seven years. I returned to the baths and lived there with my children, but not as the indefatigable man that I had once been. After that time I kept myself alive with free indulgence in company and nobblers, both of which stimulants I have since discovered were woefully deceiving. My end seemed to be fast approaching, and I began to think seriously over my past life, and came to the conclusion that, to a very large extent, it had been a mistake, and that now it had become a case of life or death with me, and that whichever it was to be rested entirely with myself. To be or not to be, that was the question. I had no strength of my own left upon which to act, and I felt that, unless superhuman help came to me, I was a doomed man. I secretly prayed for help, and it came in a way I little expected. Now about this time there arrived in Adelaide a good man by the name of Matthew Burnett. He brought a good character for benevolence and self-sacrificing work with him from Victoria, where he had spent eighteen years of his life in preaching the word of God and advocating the cause of temperance. He had made many thousands of converts. Some people in Adelaide looked upon him at first as one of the many adventurers who had come over from Melbourne with the idea of doing better here, but they had misunderstood him, as it was quite clear such was not his aim. It was no pecuniary or sordid motive that brought him over, but the grand object of his life evidently was to rescue from an early grave, and to lead on to God and to everything that was good, those who were being allured step by step to destruction through indulgence in the cursed drinking system. At this time I met an old chum named Dyer. Have you been to hear this man, Burnett? said he. No, I replied. I don't go to such humbug. Come and have a drink. Well, said he, I will just have one with you, but I mean to give it up, Tom. I went to hear him, said he, and he opened my eyes somewhat. He is a wonderful man. Why? There was one woman there who nearly fainted. His eloquence had such power over her. He is a great man and no mistake, and I intend to join next week. Just have one nobbler with me now. You paid for the last, you know. Will you join if I do? said Dyer. I'll think it over, said I. I did think, and that was all, until I got so bad that I had to send for my friend, Dr. Way. When he came and found me in bed, he said very sadly, Ah, Tom, you have been at it again, and could not deny it for it was too true. The doctor gave me good advice and physic, and I swallowed the latter, but forgot to practice the former. I stayed at home for several days, and got a little better, and tried hard to knock off my habit. But although I was fully aware of the fact that my frequent indulgence was the cause of my illness, I had not the resolution to abstain from drink. A few days after this, Mr. Burnett paid visit to the workmen fit the railway works to give them a short lecture during their dinner hour. A great number were present besides the workmen, and among them was I, who went 
there merely as liquor-on and to kill time the subject of the lecture was yankee bill a man that at one time wrote some lines to mr burnett threatening to hang him on a wattle tree he afterwards thought better of it and became one of mr burnett's best friends working with him in the good cause of temperance the life of yankee bill is a lesson most people might learn i took a great interest in the lecture and studied well the good advice it contained and it seemed to me to go down much better than physic a day or two afterwards when i was taking a glass of ale my son charles came to me and said father there is a gentleman waiting to see you upstairs he says he don't want any money but he wants to give you something good i'll be there said i and went to him at once your pleasure said i well the truth is said he i heard you were unwell and called to see if you were better you remember mr giles who used to deliver letters to you some time back i think i do said i and it's very kind of you to call i have been very ill for some time but i know the cause of it i take too much to drink i thought so said he now if you were to join mr burnett's crusade it would make a new man of you i have been a teetotaler myself for the last two years and can therefore speak from experience said giles i have a very good mind to try it said i why don't you say at once that you will try it you will never repent it as long as you live said giles and with your permission i will call in and introduce mr burnett to you he is a very pleasant man to speak to well you may said i but mind i do not pledge to join good afternoon keep yourself quiet said he i can see you are in a very weak state but you will get over that in time if you follow mr burnett's advice the next day while i was indulging in a glass of ale my daughter grace rushed into my room and said here is mr burnett come to see you ask him in said i i will see him directly at that moment i was engaged in warming my beer i however left it in the glass on the mantelpiece and went to see mr burnett how do you do said he i have much pleasure in making your acquaintance professor for i have heard a great deal about you a great deal of no good i fear said i unless it has been to landlords of hotels you mistake me you have many good friends who fear that in your love for society you are yielding rather too freely to indulgence in drink and positively injuring your health by it they don't want to lose you yet and they tell me that you are heartily sorry to see such a marked difference in your looks and i tell you my friend said he it cannot positively last long i have witnessed many cases like yours and i tell you candidly the remedy entirely rests with you there are many days of health and happiness in store for you if you will only embrace the present opportunity pledge me your word now that you will positively give up the drink and all that i promise is yours peace of mind and good health well it's worth trying for said i but if the sudden knocking of it off kills me as many say it will i shall have caused my own death by doing so that's all nonsense said mr burnett you try it and you will find that i am right and they are wrong i have thought over the subject pretty well said i and i think i'll give it a trial good said mr giles who was present at the interview sign at once oh do father said my daughter grace will you sign if i do said i yes father was the reply mr burnett thereupon produced the agreement and i signed it and my three sons and daughters have since joined together with my three servants it is scarcely necessary to say that there was great rejoicing 
I threw my glass of ale into the fire, and I am glad to say that I have not touched alcoholic liquors since. I then described to Mr. Burnett how the desire for drink increased, and the more I drank, the more I wanted. To prevent that craving, said Mr. Burnett, I will give you a very simple remedy. It was given to me by the celebrated Dr. Dunger. It is this, and you take three spoonfuls of it every four hours the first day, two the next, one the next, and so on, until you have taken the contents of the bottle. My dear friend, continued Mr. Burnett, I will call you and see you again in the course of a day or so, and in the meanwhile take as much nourishing food as you can. Goodbye. I will call in, say, on Friday, and Mr. Giles will call to-morrow with Dr. Dunger's medicine. The first day and night was a sore trial for me. Oh, how I long for beer and nobblers! But I had given my word, and I would not break it. I had lost my appetite, and managed to take a cup of cocoa and a small slice of toast, and was so reduced in body that when I weighed myself, I was alarmed to find that I had dwindled down from ten stone, four pounds, to eight stone, one and a half pounds. The next morning Mr. Growls called. What sort of a night did you pass? said he. Very bad, replied I. You will be better to-night after you have taken this medicine, which is not nauseous. You will find your appetite return, and it will make you sleep as well. I found it all true what was said. It is a most wonderful discovery, and its effect is simply marvelous. The second day after I had taken it, I could eat and sleep well, a thing I had not done for years. Mr. Burnett called me on Friday, according to promise, and gave me a few comforting words, which tended to encourage and strengthen me under my severe trial. But happily for me, the medicine was so effectual that every day seemed to bring with it less of the craving for drink. In the course of about a month, I found myself getting the master of the cursed passion that had enslaved me so long. And alas, not only me, but hundreds of thousands besides. And I intend, with God's help, to continue steadfast in my resolution to the end of life, and as long as I live to use all my influence to promote the good cause of total abstinence, and to follow the example of Mr. A. W. P. Ward, one of Mr. Burnett's converts, and the veritable Yankee Bill, before mentioned, whose warm advocacy induced no less than 17,000 persons to take the pledge. In drawing this long story of my life to a close, I desire to inform the reader that it is not for my own glory it has been written, but with the hope that some good may be the result. I hope that nothing has been written that will offend anyone, for I have endeavored to avoid anything like arguments on vexed subjects, and to write the whole truth and nothing but the truth. If I have not been perfectly accurate in my dates, I wish to set myself right by recapitulating the following facts. I was born on September 22nd, 1818, in the city of London, and was baptized at Old Cripplegate Church. I was married on August the 10th, 1840, left England in 1852, and arrived in Adelaide on July 16th, 1852, left Adelaide for the diggings in March, 1853 and returned the same year, pursued the banking and professional part of my life until the year 1866, established the Turkish Baths in 1870, lost my wife in 1877, and became a follower of Mr. Burnett in 1880. I here finish my autobiography up to the present, and give place to those who may think fit to criticize this humble attempt, and leave the after to someone who knows me well to add something 
by way of comment concerning my life, and refer to what I have done and undone, and I trust that when my hour shall arrive to depart from this present state of being, I will be able to depart in peace with God and goodwill to all men. In concluding this narrative, I desire to inform the reader that I do not for a moment flutter myself, that I am giving forth to the world anything that may be designated a literary production, but only an emanation from one born within the sound of Bow Bells. I feel that I am merely contributing a simple and unvarnished story of one who may be fairly taken as the type of a large class in the great city of London. My epilogue. Tis education that forms the mind. Just as the twig is bent, the tree's inclined. So runs the adage of an age that's past, an aphorism that is bound to last. Long have I taught our gentle youth natation, and tried to raise the physique of our nation. To better their physiques, no physic they require, to train developed biceps that never tire, to keep their heads with ease above the waters, much have I done to train our sons and daughters. Now, as an author, I humbly strive to win, old pupils help, come gratify my whim, and float me on the literary tide, and make your old professor gratified. Grant me your patronage, for tis most sure, this is the first fruits of my water cure. Before dear Matthew Burnett came, my nose did blush and blossom like the budding rose and conscientiously I did take my beer, as well as any in the hemisphere. With festive glass I strove to drown my care, reflect upon the past I scarcely dare. New on the path that doth became a man, I tread and have cast off the ban. Help me, old colonists, to do what's right. Help me, old pupils, with your smile so bright. Help me, ye daughters of this sunny clime, you'll never regret it in the coming time, when you and yours upon the stream of life shall safely ride as husband or as wife, and as you con my book you'll think of him who in your youth first taught you how to swim. End of Part 3, Section 3 End of the Autobiography of Cockney Tom by Thomas Bastard Recording by John Thomas Kuzkazmarski www.validateyourlife.com